0: Father, you are awesome. You've had a plan from the beginning to the end, a plan that included your people, the Jewish people, a plan that included the first coming of Jesus Christ, to be born of the Virgin Mary, to live a perfect life, perform miracles, cast out demons, and then die on the cross for our sins, and then rise again from the dead, and then ascend to heaven and and pour out your spirit upon your people, And in between times, we're to reach the world for Christ, and then you come back, Jesus. This is an incredible plan, and we want to get in on it. So please help us today, especially today, in these difficult times. Help us to hear from your word. What is our part, and what are you doing? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. By the way, Merry Christmas. Okay, you can say that all December. Okay, Merry Christmas. It's, it's perfectly okay. Uh, and uh, So ter- turn to Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 19, page 576 in the Bibles so that we give away. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the gospel of Mark verse by verse. And we are at this section. I'm entitling God is doing a new thing. Okay, I originally planned on going through uh, several more verses, but it ended up being like fifty minutes long. So I thought you probably would like it if I split it up into two sermons. Okay, so that's that's what we've done. And uh, but we're looking at God is doing a new thing. You know, God has a plan, and sometimes we have a plan, right? And our plans quite often don't work, or we do really stupid things sometimes, right? Okay. Like this. Watch watch this video briefly. <laughs> Under the other leg. There we go. Boom. Bam! <laughs> 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 that, that's our plan, okay? You, you know what the definition of insanity is? <laughs> Doing the same thing, but expecting... Different results, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. That's a, Well, that is not what God did, okay? God has had a plan from the beginning, but to show us, first of all, what doesn't work and why, and then what will work. If you've noticed with God's plan, first of all, he created a great garden, and Adam and Eve lived in this paradise and great, wonderful life that they had, but then they sinned. Well, God knew that was gonna happen, so he had nature that was redemption, But then you see how, with that sin, quickly the world just became rotten and horrible to where God judged the world with a flood, right? Remember that? Big flood. Judged the world, wiped out everybody except for eight people on the boat. Now, he did that, and you would think, okay, we'll start over. Started out bad, we'll do start over, and then it'll work out okay. But it didn't. It didn't work because we don't need a start just to start over. Because there's something wrong, not outside, but something wrong in our hearts. Noah, right afterwards, what's the first thing he does after the flood's over? He gets drunk. And then sin just permeates the, the, the you know, as they grew and, and uh, multiplied, et cetera. And you just see this, just corruption to where they, the Tower of Babel, then they're building a tower to make a name for themselves. And, and so then God has. He starts working with one particular person, Abraham and his descendants. He says, okay, this is what I'm going to do with Abraham. And this was a a covenant that he made with Abraham, a permanent covenant, actually, with him and his descendants. And then after Abraham, it was Moses, and he gives Moses the law. And then the law doesn't work. The old covenant doesn't work work. And it doesn't work because it was laws out here rather than in here. The problem is the heart. In fact, the problem with our world today is not we don't need to fix society. We don't need to fix societal structures, though those should be fixed. Trust me. The problem is in the heart. And so we reach people for Christ. And so we see this. So even with the Old Testament, it doesn't Work, But from the beginning, God has had a plan of the new covenant with Jesus Christ coming, first to die for our sins, second to wipe out all evil, a new covenant, a new thing to accomplish the original plan of redemption, the plan he's had from the very beginning. So when I say God is doing a new thing, the new thing is actually the original old thing, only new. It is the completion of the old thing. Let's look at it in our passage. Mark 11, verse 12. The next day when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, "'Is it not written, "'My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, "'but you have made it a den of thieves?' The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him." for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Now, it continues on, and it speaks of the barren fig tree, how in the next morning they go out and they see that the fig tree is withered, okay? And I'm gonna look at that section next week, but notice here you have the fig tree being cursed and the fig tree withering, but in between those two, kind of like a sandwich, you have what people call the cleansing of the temple. And the reason why this Mark has put this in this order. It's what it's what's called intercalation. There you go. There's a new word you get to learn. Okay, you don't even have to remember that word. But uh, but what it means is this is something Mark would do. He would put two things like a sandwich on the end, and then in the middle he would put something else to really to say one thing. So we don't have two events here. We have one s- message that he is seeking to make in. Uh, Brook's commentary, he explains, he says, The cursing of the fig tree and the expulsion of the merchants from the temple are prophetic actions that symbolize the same thing, the coming judgment on unfaithful Israel by the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. Israel, like the fig tree, appearing to be thriving, but the appearances were deceiving because Israel and the fig tree were bearing no fruit. So both episodes are saying the same thing, that God is bringing a curse upon the Jewish people, and he's gonna do a new thing in the new covenant. The grand plan starts in a garden and it ends in glory. But the new thing takes place when Jesus appears. First and second comings. So let's walk through this. Verses 12 through 14, we see that God is cursing Israel. The fig tree represents Israel. All the way through the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, we see this idea that the fig tree represents Israel, the nation of Israel. And we're seeing that the last miracle in the Gospel of Mark recorded is God or Jesus cursing Israel? Is he just having a fit here? See, he sees a fig tree, you know, he's hungry, and he's like, oh man, curse you, and you know, he gets cursed. Then he goes in the temple and just throwing people around. Is he just having a tantrum? No, <laughs> no. This is purposeful. The whole thing is God's design. God is cursing Israel. I want you to see another passage where we see this in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew 23, this is just before Matthew 24 where we see that great passage where Jesus describes what the end times will be like. But before that, in Matthew 23, throughout the whole chapter, he speaks judgment against the religious leaders and then he makes this conclusion, verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing, see your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the and we see this curse here as well. Speaking of how the house, it's not a cleansing of the temple, by the way. It's a condemnation of the temple. And so we see here, but I do want to say this. If you notice in verse 39, there's a little preposition that says until. Until. Because God isn't through the Jewish people. He has an absolute plan for them, and we're gonna see that in a little later, okay? But in the meantime, he is condemning them specifically and especially because of their rejection of their Messiah. But that brings up the question, what was wrong with Israel? In McKenna's commentary, he states, chosen by divine appointment, Given God's law, protected from annihilation, led to a new land, disciplined in exile, blessed beyond measure, Israel stands at the center of the world as a source of God's redemptive hope. Alas, instead of fulfilling the hope by accepting Jesus as the Messiah, God's own people counter his coming with a rigid display of empty rituals, human interpretations, and meaningless symbols. They didn't have the truth in their hearts. And that's what they needed. Now, in the end, we'll see that they do embrace Jesus as Messiah. But here, we see the curse, cursed. Now, in our modernist and postmodern worlds, we don't like talking about this. We don't like seeing, looking at these kinds of scenes where God curses and he judges and we say, oh, no, 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 I want to, you know, just a, a fluffy, happy, you know, whoop-dee-doo God. That's what I want, right? Isn't that what you want? You know, that's what that's what we see, but that's not the real Jesus. Look at Jesus here. Raw. This is him. He goes in, curses the fig tree, making this great statement, then wreaks havoc in the temple. Because God is cursing Israel. Now that brings up a question. Does God curse other nations? As you look in the scriptures, you see over and over and over, yes, he does curse other nations. If we were to look at Amos chapter 1, verses 3, 6, 9, 11, 13, and chapter 2, verse 1, he curses a different nation in each verse because of the sins they had committed. It's worth our while to look at Amos 1:13. Hosea Joel, Amos, if you're in the uh, minor prophets. We see the reason for this particular nation being cursed. Verse 13, it says, The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing the Ammonites for three crimes, even four, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their territory. They killed unborn babies. And do you think God will curse a nation for doing that? You better believe it. That's what we're seeing here. In Isaiah 24, verse 6, Isaiah 24 through Isaiah 27 is actually what scholars call the little apocalypse. It's a, the Isaiah's version of what the end times will be like. It's like the book of Revelation only condensed. And in Isaiah chapter 24, verse 6, he specifically says that in the end times, he will curse all the nations. The entire world will be cursed. And in Genesis 12, verse 3, we see one of the reasons why. In Genesis 12, verse 3, that initial promise back when God was working with Abraham, and he gave that, made that covenant with Abraham, in Genesis 12, verse 3, he makes this statement. He says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And it still holds true. Now, the Jewish people are the descendants of Abraham physically, and so it includes and is pointing to them. How nations treat the Jewish people, that's how God will treat them. But it also refers to God's people. We are the descendants of Abraham spiritually, according to the Bible, Galatians chapter 3. So how nations treat God's people, the church, also is how God will treat those nations. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. I think of the Islamic nations surrounding Israel. All of them, at least in past, just a couple, a couple of them have made treaties with them just recently. That's really smart on their part, according to this verse. Because the Bible says he will curse. And what what, do we, what we see in the Islamic nations is they're all languishing. None of them are flourishing because God curses Nations. That's what we're to see in this. But what about the United States? What about our country? Our country started out with so much promise. We have the Pilgrims uh, and then the Puritans and the Constitution with the Bill of Rights. But where are we heading? What's wrong with us? In 1973, since 1973, 61 million. Babies have been slaughtered. And do you think God won't judge that? God judges nations. What will we do? If he takes his hands off of us as a nation, he will still accomplish his purposes. But the Bible's very clear, Proverbs 14, 34 Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Not just Israel, any people. And God brings judgment. But if you're a born-again believer and you're living for Jesus Christ, even if God decides to curse our nation, we have this incredible promise in Psalm 55, verse 22. This is my uh, Bible memorization verse uh, that I just picked up. I, I don't have it memorized yet, so I gotta look it up. Okay. Psalm 55, verse 22. It takes me, you know, when you get older, it takes a lot longer to memorize Bible verses. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're young, so. It's... Well, anyway, okay, so start now. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Now, there is a principle that I can hold on to. (laughs) Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Jesus, back to our passage, Jesus cursed Israel, but not forever. We saw that little word until. We know that in the end of time, the Bible says that they will embrace Jesus as Messiah, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. A while back, a friend of mine, a coworker, Leslie, uh, she had gotten saved. She was Jewish. She had gotten saved recently and then started came on staff at Northwestern, and the two of us Worked on a project together. We were writing a, a, an online class on the Gospels for Northwestern, and she, uh, I did the writing of the course, and she did the computer stuff. Okay, that's that was her expertise. And so the two of us put this together. But she started sharing the material with her mother. Her mother was a um, a secular Jewish woman, uh, you know, for years, you know, all her life, and uh, she was sharing this information. Plus, my book, uh, "The Uniqueness of the Bible," which deals with Judaism, and and her mother was intrigued. And her mother bowed down and prayed to receive Jesus Christ as her Lord, Savior, and Messiah, just before she died. And that's just one of many stories. God is doing a new thing. He's starting to reach the Jewish people, which means we're probably getting close to the end, (laughs) which I think is awesome. Okay. You know, there's a few, that tribulation thing and all that. But but. So God is cursing Israel. We see this with the with the cursing of the fig tree. And once again, Jesus isn't just going along. He's hungry. He sees a fig tree. It's full of leaves, which would would have been a sign that there might be some figs there. If anything, not maybe not necessarily the the ripe figs that are really good and juicy, but maybe the little uh, the, I forget they got a word for them, but little nub kind of things that are still not very tasty, but you can still filling. So he's looking for something and finds nothing. But he already knew there's nothing on the fig tree, didn't he? In fact, Mark makes sure we understand this. He says it was not the season for figs. And Jesus, being God, knew that it wasn't the season for being figs. He's setting this up. This is all a part of his plan because he wanted them to hear this word. God is cursing Israel, and God is changing temples. Verses 15 through 19, he goes in. This is not the cleansing of the temple, really. This is the condemnation of the temple and what it had become. This is the new thing. Jesus isn't mad. He's not throwing a temper tantrum. No, he's making a statement. Jesus is critiquing false religion. Daniel Aiken's commentary he says, Pilgrims, those were the Jewish people who didn't live in Jerusalem, but three times a year for the festivals they had to come to Jerusalem. So here during Passover, they're all coming and they were called pilgrims. They would make their journey from wherever they lived in Israel down to Jerusalem, singing the songs of ascent, etc. Well, the pilgrims were requested to bring an acceptable, perfect sacrifice that had to pass a rigorous inspection. Most chose were really forced to buy an approved animal certified by the mafia of temple priests backed by the powerful and corrupt Sanhedrin. The markup was shameful and immoral. Some estimate they charged 16 times the normal price. Two pigeons normally sold for 25 cents now sold for around $4. Money changers would exchange foreign currency, which was unacceptable for transaction in the temple, into Jewish currency, again, for an outrageous fee. Jesus saw extortion, bribery, greed, and dishonesty in this religious bazaar. He got physical and righteous rage and indignation, and he cleaned house. Burning with passion and purity, he restored, at least for a moment, the temple of God to its rightful purpose. Here is God's greatest high priest exercising his rightful authority over his temple. Jesus suddenly became a bouncer, he grabbed them by the scruff of the neck, kicked them in the seat of the pants, overturned their tables, and knocked them from their perches. That's what we're seeing here when he goes in and cleans house, not even permitting them to carry the goods in the temple. And he says, why? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. Now, that's the second part of that verse, you've made it a den of thieves, is a quotation from Jeremiah 7 verse 11. He specifically quotes that verse because he knew that the Jewish people would know what comes after Jeremiah 7, verse 11. Jeremiah 7, verse 11 says that, that you've made my house a den of thieves, and then he says, therefore, just as I destroyed Shiloh, I will destroy the temple. That's what he goes on to say in Jeremiah chapter 7. This is a pronouncement of judgment on the temple. That's what we're seeing in this passage, in this supposed cleansing of the temple. Jesus is critiquing false the false religion that it had become. And he's calling God's people to come back to the original plan. You notice he also quotes Isaiah 56, verse 7. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That has always been God's original plan. We saw that in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. You know, it said, I will bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt, and you will be a blessing to all nations. That's always been his plan. He wants to reach, he wanted them to reach all nations. And so he's calling us back to that original plan, This is the critique the New Testament makes against the unfulfillment of the old covenant. The new thing is the fulfillment of the old thing in a new way. (laughs) We have to get that straight because some people, when they hear God is doing a new thing, they think, oh, is this going to do something brand new today? Something brand new they never even had planned before. That is not what we're supposed to understand. This has been the plan of God from the beginning. Look at... um, What's the next verse there? Jeremiah 6, verse 16. Important for us to get this point. Jeremiah 6, verse 16. He says, this is what the Lord says. Stand by the roadways and look. Ask about the ancient paths. Which is the way to what is good? Then take it and find rest for yourself." but they protested, we won't. The ancient paths, that points us to the way, which is good. The Jewish people had missed it. They had become corrupt, and Jesus is coming because they they were already told, if you look at the Pentateuch, it already says, Moses told the people, you're gonna break this covenant. It's not gonna work. But his original plan and his end plan are the same. And that is to reach every nation, tribe, people, and language. Revelation chapter seven, verse nine. Every culture, color, ethnicity, and people group. God wants a colorful church. That's what we see in the scriptures. That is God's plan. Prejudice has no place in the church at all and he's calling us to do this to see this take place because the new temple is the church, the old temple is condemned here, but the new temple is the church. We see this portrayed. We uh, let me read again from Aiken. He says, Jesus. Has made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He then went to the magnificent temple, which would not be completely finished until AD 64. Sadly, it would be totally destroyed just six years later. Here, in the spring of AD 33, Jesus looks around at everything. It would soon be evident that Jesus did not like what he saw. A people in a place that was meant to be a light to the nations has become a den of thieves, a hideout for religious outlaws. The status quo was not acceptable. How would our Lord respond to those who through recipients of his grace and goodness had failed in the assignment and calling he had given them? How will he respond to us today if we are likewise disobedient? The temple's the new... The new temple is the church. According to 1 Corinthians 3:16, it says that we if you're a born again believer that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That God doesn't remain outside. He himself comes inside to our hearts and lives through us. He empowers us. He helps us. He leads us. This is God's plan. And guess what? It works. This has been the plan all along. First, show us starting over again doesn't work. Also, laws on the outside rather than the end doesn't work. But boy, put that law on the inside and put God himself on the inside. Make you his temple. It works. That's his plan. And we see that we're his temple. We also see in uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 5, that we... Collectively, as the church are his temple. So I personally, you personally, if you know Christ, you're his temple, but we also, especially as we gather together, are his temple to experience the presence of God and reach out and do accomplish the purpose of God, reaching all nations for Christ. We want to see God move in our midst, As we gather together, don't you? Maybe a little more? What do you think? We want to see him move in our midst. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Okay, this is right after Pentecost, day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit's poured out, they are filled bunch of people get saved here's the original plan of the church the new temple verse 42 it says they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching they loved the bible to the fellowship they love getting together and fellowshipping about christ and with christ together to the breaking of bread that's the lord's supper and to prayer everyone now watch this everyone was filled with awe does that sound good filled with awe as they gathered together. And many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles, signs and wonders. I'm, on, I'm up for that, okay? Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. They took care of each other. And every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house Notice here, this is the original plan. They got together on Sunday mornings in the temple. That's where the first church was actually actually met. The church, by the way, is the people, not the building. Other times they'd rent buildings or they'd meet in big houses, et cetera, et cetera. But they'd gather together on Sunday mornings in a larger group and then from house to house throughout the week, gathering together, experiencing this deep fellowship that we need. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. Now I'm gonna... Hold off on verse 47 until just a little bit later, right? So here we see, we want to see God move in our midst as we gather together. Here we see this initial gathering and the incredible stuff that takes place, signs and wonders. In Acts chapter 4, when they got together to pray, it says God shook the place literally. In Acts chapter 13, when the church got together to pray, the first missionaries were commissioned and sent out to turn the world upside down by reaching souls for Christ. That's God's plan. His plan is not to change nations, though social structures and nations they do need changing. His plan is to reach individuals because the real and true problem is the heart. But if you get people and reach them in their hearts and turn them and see more and more people get saved, that will have the proper effect on the nations. But this is God's plan. And by the way, it works. That's what he calls us to do. And so we want to see God move in our midst as we gather together. But we have to gather together. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 23. Keep your finger in Acts 2 47 because I want to read that in just a minute. But Hebrews chapter 10. This is especially true in our day if we're getting close to the end of time. It says, Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful have to hold on to our confession in the midst of difficulties and trials. Our faith can waver, he says. Hold on, because he is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. We're not supposed to be focused on me. What are my needs? We're supposed to look out to each other, think about each other, call each other, do good things for each other, right? Especially in this day and time. Not neglecting to gather together is some in the habit of doing but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching especially as you see the end of time coming it says don't neglect the gathering of yourselves together now there are some who because of uh, their their uh, situation etc they do need to be careful and cautious and that's why we have online the services online right? The first service, we require everybody to wear a mask, et cetera, uh, because we care. But those online, and all of us, need to, we still need the fellowship. Uh, we, we, so that's why, it, if that's where you're at, then at least get involved in a life group. Because in the life groups, through Zoom, you can fellowship. We, we dare not. Take this lightly because he says, especially as you see the day approaching, especially as the end of time comes, we need this kind of fellowship. And he knows, we saw in Matthew 24, the birth pains. That's what the coronavirus is. It's a birth pain. It's one of those things that's just going to get worse. More and more stuff like that's going to happen. But we cannot neglect the gathering of ourselves as it says here. We have to take this thing seriously because we want to see God move in our midst as we gather together. And then we want God to use us as we spread out over this community. That's the verse 47 of Acts chapter 2. "'Praising God and enjoying the favor of all people, "'every day the Lord added to their number "'those who were being saved.'" individuals personally repenting of their sins, placing their faith in Christ and him alone for their salvation, and outwardly expressing that faith in baptism. That's individuals getting saved, but lots of them. (laughs) Because God's people, they gather together, they get filled up, and then they go out and they make a difference in the world. Are you doing that? Do you want to do that? Do you want to gather together, see the awe of God, see him move even more and more mightily, and then go out and see him work through us to change this world? That's the plan, okay? We want to take part in that. We take, because if we're the temple, we have the presence of God with us, and so the presence of God goes out into the world. I called my friend Mark last week. And we had some dialogue. My, Mark, my friend is a, an alcoholic, and he's really struggling. Well, he called me back, and we had a great time of talking in prayer. He's getting close. Pray for Mark. <laughs> he's getting close. Do you have people in your life? You gotta. This is his hat because listen, listen. What happens if the church abandons its original calling? It's actually pretty clear in Scripture. If you look at Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, he speaks of seven churches back at that time, but they represent different churches just like we see them today. And in several of those kinds of churches, he says, if they just abandon God's calling, he just crosses them out, takes them out. I don't want that. We're not gonna see that. We love Jesus too much and we want to reach the lost too much, right? <laughs> okay. But that's what we see. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we see this what's gonna be what the end of the world is gonna be like. Look at this, uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 1, but know this, hard times will come in the last days. So in the last days, at the end of time, hard times will come, for people will be lovers of self. Boy, that sounds like today. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents. That's a bad one ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. These people haven't left the church. Their church has just simply died. It says, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. That's what the end is going to be like. That's what happens if the church abandons its original calling. But God is doing a new thing, Isaiah forty three nineteen. The new covenant brought the new thing that is the old thing completed. And we're in the middle of the new thing just before it's finished with Jesus' return. We don't want to go back to business as usual once COVID is gone. We want a fresh move of God's spirit to take us back to the original plan of God before we added all the trappings of religion to Christianity, somewhat like the Jewish people added to their faith. As the temple of God, we want to see God move in our midst as we gather together and then use us mightily as we spread out over this community. So do you want to hear God's voice? Are you willing to pray boldly? We're going to talk about that next week. That's the next section, bold prayer. Will you pray for our nation like never before? Let's pray. Father, we look at our nation and we confess we don't deserve you. We deserve for you to take your hand off of us. We've become so wretched. But Father, have mercy. Have mercy on the United States. I pray, please, help us. Help us Come back to your calling as a nation. We don't want this curse upon us. Help us, Lord, to save the babies, to get rid of prejudice, to be a nation that's righteous. Have mercy on us. We need you. Don't take your hand off. And for your people here, help us, oh God, as we gather together, help us to experience your power afresh, that as we leave this place, we'll feel filled, equipped, and ready to reach out. And then give us opportunities to take your presence to the world and make a change, make a difference. Lord, give us the lost. And it's our prayer.